seriously popular. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm the Member of Parliament and author Chris Bryant. And in this new series, I'm delving into history, crime and injustice and bringing you stories which should never have happened. This is Lost Voices. in 1835, a time which should have been a time of great reform in the country in lots of different regards, but not in regards to the death penalty for homosexuality. And there are several mysteries at the heart of this story, which is what I want to take you through in these three episodes. First of all, why did they hang when others hadn't been hanging at Newgate for more than two years? And secondly, why were they the last to hang? When we didn't change the law in this country, we kept the death penalty for homosexuality until 1861, another 26 years. These are the mysteries that we're going to explore in these three episodes. I hope by the end, you'll understand what happened and you'll want to rage like me against one of the greatest injustices in British history. The year is 1835. The world is changing rapidly in Britain. You've got a Liberal government, 
they would have called themselves Whigs, but many of them were liberals in the sense that they believed in free trade, they believed in commerce, they believed in getting rid of the old corruption in the House of Commons, they thought that you, the factories needed to be properly regulated so that people weren't oppressed and children weren't used. Um, it, it was a time of complete radical change in British politics. And one of the things that was changing was, for many years, roughly 200 different crimes were capital crimes. That is to say, you could be put to death for them and you would be sentenced to death for them up and down the country. And that included the ancient crime of buggery or sodomy. But what the government at the time was doing was steadily getting rid of all these different death penalty crimes. So counterfeiting and stealing small amounts of money or stealing small amounts of property. And the, and the government was more or less trying to keep the death penalty just for murder and for serious violent crimes such as rape. But nobody as yet wanted to change the law on sodomy and buggery, which was technically, and had been since the time of Henry VIII, a capital offence. Most other countries, if they had ever hanged anybody, had stopped long, long before. The Napoleonic Code made no mention of homosexuality, made it absolutely clear that there was no specific offence. The last uh, execution in France had been in 1750, but we were still hanging people in the 1800s up until 1835, and that's quite extraordinary. And this obsession was quite acute. Interestingly... It was always referred to either as an unnatural crime or as the crime not to be mentioned or named amongst Christians. And in fact, so obsessed were people that even in the court records, they don't write the word buggery or sodomy. They write B-G-R-Y or S-D.M.Y. You go... It was absolutely obsessive. And in fact, when, they, when Sir Robert Peel was changing the law in the House of Commons about um, people alleging that other people were homosexual, he didn't even say that it was the crime not to be named among Christians in English. He said it in Latin. Uh, as if it, this was the, it, it wasn't just the love that dare not know its name in the words of Oscar Wilde's lover. It was the crime that wasn't even allowed to have a name. For centuries, British men had greeted one another by kissing. But several visitors to the UK in the early 19th century noted that Englishmen were so obsessed that they shouldn't be thought of as engaging in an unnatural crime that they refused to kiss one another and now shook hands. It seems extraordinary, doesn't it, that we still shake hands, uh, whereas in the past we used to kiss one another. One of the rows in court was, did you have to prove, to prove that the offence had been committed, both penetration and ejaculation? And the government actually decided to make it easier to get convictions so you didn't have to prove both of those things. Though interestingly, as we'll discuss later when we come to the court case itself, that is one of the elements that the prosecution tried to prove, both that there had been ejaculation and penetration. Although the book is called James and John, 
this is really the story of three men. James Pratt, John Smith and William Bonell. One of the difficulties about writing history at this particular time is that the mandatory and statutory process of recording all births, deaths and marriages only came in in 1837, which is after the story that I'm telling. The first of the three was William Bonell, who was baptised on Saturday, the 23rd of September in 1769 at the font in St Leonard's Chapel in the township of Bilston near Wolverhampton in Staffordshire. Bilston was one of those extraordinary places at the early part of the 19th century and late 18th century that had been completely transformed by the Industrial Revolution. So suddenly you had all sorts of industries that never existed before and some of the old ones that had been around for a very long time. We think, because it's referred to later just before he gets deported uh, to Van Diemen's Land or Tasmania, that he had married and had a child, but it's very difficult to track down the details of that. We certainly know that he was a servant for several decades working in a series of different homes. The second of our three characters to be born was John Smith. Now, it's really difficult to track down a John Smith at the beginning of the 19th century. But we do know that he was born in Worcester, which was a beautiful cathedral city which was renowned for producing gloves. The glove-making industry was uh, famous and employed several thousands of people uh, in Worcester when he was born around the turn of 1800. We can't be precise because all the babies that were baptised as John Smith in Worcester around this period seem to have died within a few years, as was common at the time. And the newspapers, when John Smith died, got uh, all reported different ages for him. But we do know that he worked as a servant working for uh, a very famous and wealthy uh, doctor stroke chemist stroke book collector who lived in one of the smarter parts of the new build near King's Cross and Somerstown in North London for several years. And we know that his mother was still alive and dependent on John Smith when John Smith was arrested in 1835. <laughs> The third of our characters is James Pratt. James we know a bit more about. He was born in Great Burstead in Essex, which was kind of offshoot of Billericay. And it had a beautiful old church from which apparently on a clear day you could see all the way down to the Thames and the furthest extent of London. He was baptised on Easter Day in 1803 and we know that he had brothers and sisters. Uh, we know that his father rented a piece of land for a while and was charged tax. And we also know that both his parents died in 
workhouses and that the family struggled financially um, throughout his early years. In fact, we know that uh, at one point the poor law guardians in Great Burstead had to provide not only extra money for stockings for the Pratt children, but also some pennies for him uh, to be able to survive. And James Pratt, we also know, got married. He moved to London in 1818, maybe 1819, a young lad, fresh out of the countryside. Quite often, employers in London loved to employ a young lad from the country because they thought that they would be less cunning and they would be more that, that they would know their place and that they would fit in better and because he'd worked in the countryside maybe that helped him get a job as a groom looking after the horses in one sense James Pratt was fortunate when he arrived in London looking for work because he managed to get employment working for William Scott Preston who was a young lawyer straight out of university uh, training to be a barrister and he was a bachelor. And that was important at the time because the government taxed employers who took on male servants, not female servants, only male servants, unless they were employed by bachelors for whom there was an exemption. So James Pratt's first job was living in Camberwell, uh, working as a groom, looking after the horses. Uh, It would have been tough physical work every day and he would have had to get up very early. Um, But he seems to have enjoyed it and he remained with William Scott Preston until William Scott Preston himself got married and moved to Blackheath. And at this time, James Pratt went to live with his brother who was working in the docks in Deptford. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. We're on our way to Dolben Street in SE1, just south of the river. It's a different journey from the journey that James Pratt would have made on the 29th of August 1835. He started that day in Deptford where he lived in Effingham Place. He'd set off probably not in we're in a taxi cab now he probably wouldn't have taken a uh, one of the cabs of the day or or a carriage or or indeed a boat he would probably have walked um, 
all the way from Deptford, which was renowned for its nurseries and, and gardens and flowers, in particular a very famous plant called the Deptford Pink, um, and it was almost in the countryside. But he was walking into London because he wanted, first of all, to meet his friend Fanny Conan, who, um, an Irish woman who lived not far from Newgate uh, in Swan Yard by Hoban Viaduct. But he was really looking for work because he'd been unemployed for a while. When he came to London, he even worked at the Royal Hospital Greenwich with perhaps the most impressive employer of all, who was a chaplain to the king. We don't know why that employment ended, but by the time we come to our story in August uh, 1835, James Pratt is unemployed, or out of place, as they said at the time. So he comes up to London on that Saturday morning um, to try and find work, to have a couple of pints with his mate, uh, Fanny Conan. And after lunch, he goes in search of work, or that's what he tells her. We are literally at the moment where we arrive in Surrey, or would have arrived in Surrey under the, um, the local government boundaries of the day in 1835. Uh, and we're going uh, a few roads around the corner here now to what is known as Dolbin Street today, but was George Street back then. We'd of course had the Hanoverian, so George I, George II, George III, and we were now on William IV, who had never expected to become king um, because uh, he was a younger brother, but he ended up becoming king and, uh, and then, of course, was succeeded by Queen Victoria in 1837. Uh, so this area was up and coming. Uh, they were quite grand um, terraced houses, um, stucco and stone and iron railings, um, fan lights. Um, and it was here that John and Jane Berkshire owned number 45 George Street, which was a corner house, um, from which they sold coal and they ran a kind of house removal company. On one occasion, um, John Berkshire uh, got into trouble because he nearly knocked down an old lady when he was driving his horses too fast across the bridge. He was told off for it and fined. But he claimed that uh, his horses got too excited when they were getting close to home. So here we are, we're just at the corner now. Literally here. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, mate. <laughs> People had all sorts of arguments against sex between men. One was that lots of English soldiers had been fighting in the Napoleonic Wars and they'd been off in France and Italy and Spain and they picked up terrible dirty habits from foreigners. In other words, that it was a perversion that came from the devil. And it's quite interesting that in the charges that are made against anybody for sodomy or buggery at this period, there's a, it's very heavily religious. It's quite determinedly religious argument. And, and some of it is just a, a taboo around sex in general, sex outside marriage, but with a very heavy helping of hypocrisy. 
because in 1833, uh, two members of parliament were both caught having sex with other people, with, with men. Both of them got away scot-free because they managed to uh, get lots of very famous and high-placed people to give evidence for them in court, including the, the Duke of Wellington himself. One of these men, incidentally, a few years later got caught again and had to flee the country. But that was available to if you were wealthy. If you were wealthy, you could afford a massive estate and you could afford to buy the discretion of your servants. You could afford privacy. Or if you really got into trouble, then you could go into exile somewhere else in Europe where you'd be safe because the law wouldn't attack you. Um, but of course, if you were poor, if you couldn't afford privacy, if you uh, didn't have uh, rich and famous people to defend you in court or to stand character witness for you, you didn't have any of those advantages. And the danger was if you got caught, you would hang. We're down in Southwark now, and I'm standing in front of a sign which says Dolben Street, SE1, London Borough of Southwark. And there's a run of buildings, some of which are older, much older. And then there's a building here which has a, a plaque to Mary Wollstonecraft, the uh, wonderful writer, um, teacher and champion of women's rights. And that's because this is the site of the building, number 45 George Street, which is where um, James and John had their assignation. So John Berkshire and Jane Berkshire owned this property, number 45, um, and they let rooms out. One of the rooms they let out on the first floor um, was to William Bonnell, an older man, retired servant. Um, and John and Jane Berkshire, weren't, they, they didn't trust him. They kept an eye on him all the time. And on the afternoon of the 29th of August, around about four o'clock in the afternoon, First of all, John Smith arrives and asks, is William Bonell in? And John Berkshire says, no. And, William, and John Smith says, well, I, I think I saw him going in. So he goes straight upstairs. And on the way, um, John Berkshire sees him open a side door to let James Pratt in. And both of them go upstairs to William Bonell's room. Then what happens is that John Berkshire, being a suspicious person who doesn't really like William Bonnell for whatever set of reasons, decides to go into the, into the kind of outhouse um, where the horses are kept and goes up into the stable above and clambers into the roof space, knocks out a tile, to be able to look into the room through the window on the first floor where James and John and William Bonnell are gathered. And at first he sees one of them sitting on the other's lap and then uh, the other way round... Um, and then he gets a bit bored by all of this, so he decides to come back down to have his tea with his wife, Jane. Which is when Jane decides to go upstairs and to peer through the keyhole into William Bonnell's room. And she is so scandalised by what she sees, supposedly, that she runs back downstairs and tells John, who runs upstairs and, and peer, peers through the keyhole again. Uh, they claim that they've seen James and John having sex, William having gone to go and get a, um, a, a jug of ale from the local pub. And um, so John Barcher smashes in the door, even though it's not locked. So why that was necessary, we don't know. Smashes in the door. The two men are suddenly caught um, and are terrified. So they start offering him their purse to say, you know, please, please don't do anything about this. Um, and he is... Uh, not impressed. At this point, William Bunnell comes back and says, what's going on? And John Berkshire is still so furious that he decides to call the police. 
um, a police officer is, is brought along um, and arrests the two men and they are carried off along with William Bonell by John and Jane Berkshire who wander off down George Street to the Union Hall police station which is where the magistrate will investigate whether or not they should be sent for trial. It must have been absolutely terrifying for James and John. That maybe they never saw um, men in the pillory, maybe they never went to any of the other executions, but they would know that what they had been interrupted in was something that could lead to them losing their lives. It's difficult to imagine what that terror must feel like. On the 27th of March, 2010, I got married, or rather, I entered a civil partnership. I was the first MP to do so in the Palace of Westminster with my husband, Jared Cranny. And we did it not in the chapel, because that's only available for um, Church of England services, and that's only therefore only available to uh, heterosexual couples. No, we did it in the members' dining room, which is a beautiful room full of you know Victorian wallpaper and amazing portraits of some of the great figures of British history. And what really struck me on that day was, I wonder what some of the people whose portraits are around the walls would have made of us getting married or entering a civil partnership. What would somebody like William Wilberforce have made of it, who campaigned for the abolition of slavery and was a passionate Christian, part of a, the Clapham sect who believed that we should suppress vice? What would Charles James Fox or Edmund Burke, both of whom campaigned against tyranny by governments either in America or in France, what would they have made of it? Richard Brinsley Sheridan, the great playwright, who always believed that tyranny was to be opposed and people should live in freedom, and in fact led a fairly chaotic love life of his own. What would he have made of all of this? Because they lived at the same time of some of the people that this book is about. And that's why I wanted to write this book, because I wanted to open up an understanding of a period of our history of which we should be ashamed. Of course, it was right to abolish slavery, but maybe the moral panic that came with that campaign, the moral argument that came with it, also brought a campaign to deal with all the other vices in society, of which one was homosexuality. And I was struck recently Having written the book, I was at a book festival talking about something completely different and I bumped into Oliver Letwin, who used to be famous Conservative cabinet member, who was one of the people who'd helped introduce um, same-sex marriage. I, I told him I'd written the book and he said, you mean we used to hang people for homosexuality? I mean, I knew we were terrible. I had no idea we used to hang people. And I just think it's important that we remember our, the fullness of our history. And that's why uh, I, I wanted to write this book. When Robert Valentine arrested James, John and William and marched them off with John and Jane Berkshire to the Union Hall Police Office, it was but a short journey. What happened then is what we'll be exploring in episode two. 
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.